This is Backstory. I'm Ed Ayers. Well, do you want to be really happy? You could stay here in America or move very far away. This is coverage of the World Happiness Report. It ranks the happiest countries on Earth. And in 2013, America was ranked number 11. But just a few years later, the news was not so happy. Out of 158 countries, the United States came in 15th. The U.S. might be slipping in the rankings, but Americans have long held that the pursuit of happiness is their self-evident right. Today on Backstory, we'll explore how the meaning of that pursuit has changed across time. From the 19th century origins of the self-help movement to why Americans in the 1920s were obsessed with recording the sound of happiness. (laughs) A history of pursuing happiness in America, today on Backstory. Major funding for Backstory is provided by the Shia Khan Foundation, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. From the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, this is Backstory with the American History Guy. Welcome to the show. I'm Brian Bellow, and I'm here with Peter Onuf. Hey, Brian. And Ed Ayers is with us. Hey, Brian. We're going to begin today with a big debate over a tiny mark, a period, or maybe a comma. It's found in the Declaration of Independence, the sort of thing scholars love to argue about. I don't uh, buy the the diacritical marks explanation as an explanation for why those dashes are there in both. The abandonment of heavy capitalization, the rational use of italics and caps and small caps. I'm not sure he really distinguishes between a period and a dash, for instance. Whoa. Now, if you don't have any idea what any of that means, don't worry, because we don't either. We sent reporter Jessica Smith to cover a conference called Punctuating Happiness last year at the National Archives in Washington, D.C. And we asked her to help us unpack this controversy. Yeah, Peter, it was very dense. And for a non-academic like me, it was very intimidating. And I will admit to you that for the first hour or so, I sat in the back Googling terms like diacritical mark and syllogism, (laughs) just so I could try and follow the discussion. But, um, you know, when I calmed down, it started to come into focus. And the question they were debating was pretty clear. The question was, is there a comma or a period after the phrase pursuit of happiness? A comma or a period? It's not an easy question to answer, actually. The Declaration's original parchment is really faded. All you see in that spot now is a smudge. The most common reproduction of the Declaration, what you see on souvenir mugs and in textbooks, shows a period. But that version was copied from an engraving of the original made in 1823. And Peter, it doesn't help that Thomas Jefferson didn't include a period in any of his drafts of the Declaration. Sometimes used a comma, sometimes a semicolon. And so, all these scholars were packed into this conference at the National Archives to settle the issue. They fell into two camps. Let's call them Team Comma and Team Dot. So you're in the dot camp. I'm pro dot. So that is Woody Halton. We can call him Team Dot. He teaches history at the University of South Carolina. What I do when I see a period, I breathe. And it's while you're breathing, you're sort of inhaling that last thought. And so I'm pro dot because I think it will cause people to pause 
when they read that key phrase, which certainly is my personal favorite phrase, and I think it is for most Americans, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so there's actually, I think, some danger in removing that dot. Team Kama was led by Danielle Allen. She's a scholar at Harvard University, and her research into the punctuation question set off the whole debate, and she was the driving force behind this whole conference. So during the conference, she shared this story about why to her the comma is so important. I stood behind a group of high school kids reading out a text of the declaration that had this period in it, and they got to that, you know, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and they said, yes! And they turned around on their heels and they walked away. They didn't finish reading the sentence. Allen's point is that if Thomas Jefferson didn't use a period and he used a comma instead, that means he wanted us to keep on reading. He wanted us to read the entire sentence, including what comes after pursuit of happiness, in order to get the full meaning of the sentence. But here's the problem. Most people don't know what comes next. I had no idea until this conference. Uh, Do you guys? Yeah, I should. (laughs) <laughs> I'll let Alan fill you in. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, driving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Well, I can understand why those kids stop. <laughs> yeah. Now, you might be saying to yourself, and, and you probably are, why does this matter? What does this sentence have to do with my happiness? <laughs> but it matters. And Alan says that when you read the whole sentence, the logic changes. Um, she says ideas like laying a foundation of new government pop out. And she elaborates a bit on this when I spoke to her after the conference. My reading returns focus on the responsibility of citizens to take responsibility for their government and to see that that responsibility involves balancing individual rights with collective safety and happiness. In other words, the pursuit of happiness isn't just about your individual happiness. Alan's arguing that her comma binds the pursuit of happiness to the whole nation through choosing the government. The debate, in the end, isn't so much about the smudge itself. It's about how Americans ought to read the words around it. Listening to these debates, it seems like everyone has his or her own interpretation of what this right to pursue happiness really means. And, in fact, one really interesting thing that Danielle Allen told me during the conference is that even as the Founding Fathers were writing the Declaration, they were arguing over the very meaning of the word happiness. You might even say that disagreeing about happiness makes Americans happy. It appears to be an American (laughs) tradition. Every few months, a new survey is released claiming to measure American happiness. In the past, headlines have trumpeted the happiest states in the union, the happiest jobs, even what political leanings will make you happy. These surveys rely on polling that asks Americans to evaluate themselves. But what should we make of the answers when the meaning of happiness is so subjective? Across history, Americans have defined happiness in all kinds of ways. In fact, 
As we just heard, the meaning of the word has been shifting ever since the right to pursue happiness was enshrined in the Declaration of Independence. So as Americans across the country celebrate the nation's independence with fireworks and hot dogs, it seems like a good time to take a look at what versions of happiness that different generations of Americans have pursued. We'll explore the 19th century origins of the modern self-help movement, and we'll find out why some of the most popular recordings of the 1920s featured the sound of happiness, laughter itself. But for right now, Peter, I want to know something. Jessica told us something that is really no laughing matter at all. It really has to do with the foundation of the nation. She said that even the founders themselves weren't exactly sure what they meant by the pursuit of happiness. We all know you've read a lot of Jefferson, probably too much. (laughs) Given all your reading, Peter, I want to know, what did Jefferson mean by the pursuit of happiness? I mean, was he talking to me about my happiness as an individual? Or was he talking to the nation about pursuing, well, a kind of collective happiness? Well, he's not doing either one directly, Ouch, Brian. Brian. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And I think you've got you to gotta split the difference. And it's a nice way to put it. Is he speaking to you? Well, I'd return the question, who are you? And if you are someone who is a citizen who's active in uh, creating this society, and that speaks to your, uh, your drive as an individual to create a family to secure its prosperity and welfare and flourishing, and that's going to contribute to the larger good. Oh, gosh, Peter, that yeah, sounds so wonderful, but no. I mean, <laughs> yeah. because if you're self, if you're a citizen, uh, it sounds like you better be a guy, and it, you better be white, <laughs> and you better have some property, right? Uh, yes, you have to be a household head. You have to have civic standing. You have to be a citizen. You have to be part of it. Uh, those ideas all come together. But if you are, for instance, a child, a wife, a daughter, son, or a servant or slave, then it's much different. Uh, Then it works like this. Uh, Jefferson uses the term happiness to describe that state of well-being for those who are dependent on him. You'll be happy if you're well-fed, Ed. That's right. Uh, You'll be happy if you uh, can go to sleep at night not worrying uh, about how you're going to feed yourself and your dependence the next day. No, you're entirely dependent, and I can make you happy. That's great of you, Peter. We appreciate that. So <laughs> so to answer Brian's question, uh, Jefferson was talking to everybody, but through the lens of a household and of a certain kind of hierarchy. Yes. He lives in a completely different world, and I think that's what we need to keep in, in mind. And we tend to abstract from what he says in the Declaration, which is uh, addressed to those people who can pursue. Remember, there are people who are in no position to pursue anything in the world that he lives in. Uh, Peter, we, we know that the whole nature of the political economy has changed. It no longer resides inside the household. No. You know, it's it's dispersed to factories, to the service sector. We also know that the nature and hierarchy of family themselves uh, have changed. Uh, They're really much more egalitarian. Talk to my kids about that. So (laughs) after all these centuries of pursuing happiness and all of these changes in family and the political economy and government, 
have we achieved happiness? What would Jefferson say? <laughs> well, it's up to you, Brian. You happy? Uh, I'll tell you. This is. Uh, I think what's changed is uh, it's a matter of scale and that idea of the patriarch's responsibility for the happiness of those dependent on him. Uh, that's no longer there because the household is no longer the unit of production, and and the the family head, whether it's a father or a mother, doesn't have the power to deliver the goods, and I mean that literally. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we tend to look to the government with deep ambivalence. Uh, we may think that we are self-sovereigns, we determine our own course in life, but at the end of the day, we look to the larger economy, to the market, and those who are responsible for managing the market to deliver those things, to make it possible to achieve the satisfaction of our needs, to make it possible for us to enjoy family life and the tranquility and the That's why we're unhappy ease. with them, because they're not making us happy. I, I think that's right. And why is it that at every presidential election, the real question is, how has the economy been doing under the stewardship of the right. uh, current regime or administration? Are you better I think off that... than you were four years ago. <laughs> exactly. Well, exactly right. I think it comes back to those very fundamental questions of uh, somebody's responsible for creating the conditions in which we can enjoy uh, this happiness. And, it's, and we define it very subjectively now. Uh, very personal, but it actually comes down to the same thing. It's, I think it's a sense of possibility and satisfaction, opportunity and enjoyment, uh, that uh, they're all out there and they're all present in Jefferson's formulation, but there it's much more starkly defined, and it's defined in terms of the household and household governance. So, Peter, pursuit of happiness seems like a fairly weak foundation on which to build a new nation. Mm-hmm. Um, did Jefferson know that we were always going to be pursuing and never actually capturing happiness? Is that why that part of that phrase is there? I think for Jefferson, the pursuit of happiness has to be understood on two entirely different time scales. Happiness is something that we can grasp as individuals and feel in, in our family lives and in the satisfaction of knowing that we're providing for the next generation. Uh, but what that adds up to over time is a diffusion of happiness both across through time and across space uh, he sees that there's land out there in the west for the thousandth to the thousandth generation to create new farms new families new households new opportunities to achieve that thing happiness and to provide for the happiness of succeeding generations so peter you're saying the pursuit part of pursuit of happiness actually implied a kind of open-endedness that mm-hmm. could That's actually right. be a kind of a map for our own happiness in the world that we live in today. I think that's absolutely right, Ed. Uh, and he knows things will change. He doesn't know how they will change. We're going to turn now to an industry very much defined by actively pursuing one's own happiness, self-help. For decades, Americans have relied on a slew of authors and motivational speakers to better themselves. Now, self-help books have been around for centuries, but this story takes us to the same time and place of those spinsters we just heard about. 
We begin in 1830s Maine with a colorful clockworker and part-time mesmerist who had an equally colorful name, Phineas Parkhurst Quimby. Quimby observed that many of his neighbors fell prey to deep bouts of sadness, and he saw their religion as a major cause. Their religion was, to say the least, a gloomy one. This is writer Barbara Ehrenreich. What you were supposed to do on this earth, if you were a good Christian, uh, was constantly examine yourself for any signs of sin, you know, sinful thoughts, any slothfulness. You're supposed to be diligent, stoical, uh, hardworking, and prepared to live and die in this awful situation God had created for us. This obsession with their own sin led to a spiral of depression among many Calvinists. Some wrote of suicidal thoughts and were even bedridden by a vague illness called invalidism. For Calvinists, all this suffering was highly pious. But for Quimby, it was totally unnecessary. And his great contribution was to see that the people around him in the white middle class who were suffering from invalidism and depression and all these kinds of um, vague complaints, that, that their physical problems originated in un- unhappiness. And their unhappiness originated in a religious view that happiness itself uh, was suspect. Quimby believed that all these patients needed were happy thoughts. He didn't reject Christianity. What he said was that God wanted them to be happy. There was no need for doctors, just a better attitude. So he set himself up as a healer in Portland, Maine, and started offering so-called mind cures, basically pep talks. Aaron Reich says he was kind of like a life coach. And, you know, he, he would talk to people who said, I just can't get out of bed, I have no energy, I feel terrible, headaches all the time, and say, you know what, you don't have to, you don't have to live like this. You don't have to suffer like this. Um, this is not... God's plan. Get off that couch. Get off that sofa. Come on. Get moving. It was only after his death in 1866 that Quimby's ideas really took off. His mind cure theories developed into a popular movement called New Thought. Like Quimby, New Thought followers felt that sickness was only in the mind and that thinking positively had a curative effect. As the movement grew, its focus broadened too. It's not so much about health. It's more about success. That you can have anything. You can succeed at anything you want to. Just by exerting the power of mind over matter. Mind over matter. Sound familiar? Models like that have been popular since the early 20th century, when New Thought authors churned out self-help titles like The Attainment of Happiness or Prosperity Through Thought Force. This was an era when happiness transcended religion. Happiness became about more than simply serving God. As American industry prospered, more Americans saw a better life in wealth and material comforts, and self-help writers were there to offer advice. For generations now, they have presented positivity as the key to attaining a happy life. 
And in the past few decades, self-help philosophy has still sounded a lot like early new thought. Positive thinking works wonders by changing you. He can make you think differently. And that is based on what we're thinking and feeling. Okay. It's not the other way around. So what you're saying is, is that the choices that we make are fueled by our thoughts. So our thoughts are the most powerful thing that we have. We have to discipline ourselves to focus on the positive. Many people don't realize the reason they're not happy, the reason they're not enjoying their life, is simply because they've trained their mind to worry. Those were preacher Norman Vincent Peale, author of The Power of Positive Thinking, writer Rhonda Byrne, interviewed by Oprah for her 2006 bestseller, The Secret, and megachurch pastor Joel Osteen. Barbara Ehrenreich says they've all played their part in saturating American society with unrealistic expectations. I think in our culture now, and, you know, if we're in the late 20th and the early 21st centuries, there is a lot of pressure on people to act happy, to act positive. Ehrenreich's reflections on positive thinking are personal. In 2001, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. During treatment, she says supporters all pushed a similar mantra, stay positive. But Ehrenreich heard a different message. She felt like they were saying, think happy thoughts and you'll have a better chance of survival. I mean, there was not actually much evidence for this. And certainly I am living proof that you could get through cancer with a very bad attitude. I have come across people who were in terminal stages of cancer, were definitely dying, and were being told they were not being positive enough enough, and that's why it was happening. Now, that's really, to me, horrendous, uh, that kind of victim-blaming. The experience inspired Ehrenreich to write a history of American positivity. In it, she argues that the country's pervasive culture of optimism is ultimately damaging. The irony is that the person who is very concerned uh, with becoming more positive or becoming more mindful and constantly uh, changing themselves internally is a little bit like the Calvinist who always was searching his or her mind for signs of sin uh, or slothfulness or even joy and trying to wipe them out. With positive thinking you have people uh, trying to expunge the negative thoughts from their minds at all times. So it becomes this business of constantly working on yourself. In other words, she thinks Americans' need to stay positive has created a sort of cultural paralysis. Ironically, it's a lot like the very problem Phineas Quimby was trying to solve in the first place. Barbara Ehrenreich helped us tell that story. Her book is Bright-Sided, How the Relentless Promotion of Positive Thinking Has Undermined America. Now, over the past couple of years, it's been pretty hard to avoid one song about happiness. Because I'm happy and 
This is Pharrell Williams's Happy. It's just the latest in a line of chart-topping songs about feeling good. From the Turtles, Happy Together, a half century ago, to Bobby McFerrin's Don't Worry, Be Happy in the late 1980s. Don't worry, be happy. But in the late 19th century, a whole subgenre of recordings cropped up that was devoted to one particular expression of happiness, laughter. And by the 1920s, these recordings were hugely popular. How did these early recordings, which, let's face it, weren't exactly musical or even spoken word, have such widespread appeal? We asked producer Bruce Wallace to find out just what was so funny. The record starts with a solo cornet playing In My Younger Days, a 19th century German tune. But then... The performer soldiers on a little bit more, but things carry on like this for two more minutes, laughter and bits of aborted melodies. That's it. The album is called the OK Laughing Record. OK was the name of the label that put it out in the U.S. It was released in 1922, when the recording industry was still in its infancy. I think it would have sounded very exciting and fresh and smart. Ian Nagaski runs Canary Records in Baltimore, which researches and re-releases music from the early 20th century. He's the guy who first played the laughing record for me. Hip, I think, is basically what I'm saying. It was like the first season of Louis. The record was an immediate hit. It sold hundreds of thousands of copies and stayed in print for three decades. And it was so popular that it spawned a bunch of imitators. Some were pretty straight knockoffs, somber horn solos interrupted by laughter. Others were variations on the theme, like the OK Laughing Dance record. And the OK Laughing record number two, the singing lesson. Not all of them involved laughing. One featured a performance interrupted by contagious coughing, another uncontrolled sobs. Yeah, that one's a real downer. Jacob Smith is a professor at Northwestern University. He wrote about laughing records in his book, Vocal Tracks. He says that laughter has an important place in the early history of sound reproduction. It was often what people responded to most when they first encountered a phonograph. There was something about that laughter that seemed to compel people or fascinate them. For the first time in history, people could hear a human voice coming out of a wood and metal box, seemingly from nowhere. Smith says the experience could be unnerving. And I think something so seemingly spontaneous and embodied as a laugh would help to smooth over any of that uncertainty or disturbing experience of a disembodied voice. I think that's part of it. Smith says the popularity of laughing records wasn't just about easing nerves, though. 
By the time the OK Laughing record came out in 1922, he says audiences were a little more familiar with phonographs, but they weren't totally comfortable with the music being pushed by record companies. Labels in the 20s were going all in on classical music. They slapped fancy red labels on their symphonic offerings to make them seem special, and peppered magazines with advertisements for them, trying to convince people that this is what they should be listening to. But for many Americans, classical music was unfamiliar, and listening to it a bit awkward. So, again, laughing eased the transition. I think this drama of bursting a very solemn musical performance event with these flooding out moments, these gales of laughter, uh, would be a kind of a cathartic moment for many listeners. But there's still the question, what caused these gales of laughter in the first place? We can get a good sense of what American audiences thought by looking at the OK Laughing Records imitators. In all of them, the laughter starts after the performer flubs a note, like in this 1950s Tex Avery cartoon, which mimics the laughing record nearly note for note, except here. But listen to the original. There's no flub. The guy nails that note. So if it's not a mistake, what is it? Ian Nagaski thinks you have to look at where the recording on the Laughing Record came from in the first place. It was actually recorded a year or two earlier in Germany, a country that had just been devastated by World War I. Hyperinflation was taking off, wrecking an already teetering economy. This is a sharp contrast to the Americans of the Roaring Twenties who were listening to the laughter and hearing a lighter reason for it. Nagaski's theory is less happy. At the heart of the OK Laughing Record is a brutal cynicism. I think that the laughter actually comes from a sense of deep felt absurdity in having to listen to this trite, middle of the road, sentimental song in the face of a, an absurd moment in history. I think that's where the laughter comes from. So there are different ways to hear the laughing record, and to think about what exactly made it such a hit. Nagoski sees these varied interpretations when he tours around the U.S. and Europe, giving talks about early 20th century music. He always closes the talks with the OK Laughing record. He figures he's played it hundreds of times at this point. The reactions are always strong, and fall into two main camps, overjoyed or overwhelmed, sometimes even a little freaked out. Nagoski, for one, is firmly in the former camp. Yeah, the whole thing of uh, when, they, when they break down and they kind of get it together and they're not going to laugh anymore, and he starts playing again, and then the whole thing falls apart again. It's just incredible. Like, that's... <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. Oh, man, what a great record. <laughs> That story was brought right. to us by producer Bruce Wallace. Come on, gal, do that messing around.
Hey there, podcast listeners. If you're in the Washington, D.C. area, come see Backstory live Tuesday, July 19th at George Washington University. We're going to be covering the history of the complicated relationship between U.S. presidents and the press. We're going to have lots of great guests on stage, and you really don't want to miss this one. To find out the details and reserve free tickets, head to our website, backstoryradio.org, or our Facebook page. We hope to see you there. And remember, operators are standing by. So far this hour, we've heard how happiness has been reflected in everything from positive thinking to material well-being to the simple act of listening to laughter. But what does science have to say? Well, it turns out that happiness research has its own peculiar history. In 1939, Harvard began tracking a few hundred young men. These were undergraduates that university officials deemed the finest specimens we have. You know, the best and the brightest among, well, the best and the brightest. The aim was to study normal young adult development. So when you do that, of course, you want to pick all white men from Harvard, right? This is Robert Waldinger, a psychiatrist at Harvard Medical School. Waldinger's been in charge of the study for the last 14 years. Because get this, it's still going on. The surviving men from the Harvard study are in their 80s and 90s now. They include the original undergrads, as well as a second control group. The study was supposed to predict which young men would become the most professionally successful adults. It was funded at first by department store magnate W.T. Grant. And what he really wanted to do was find out what sort of men made the best store managers. While the study subjects were supposed to remain anonymous, we do know they weren't all destined to be retail execs. John F. Kennedy and legendary Washington Post editor Ben Bradley were among the participants. But where does happiness come in, you might ask? Well, somewhere along the line, the data began to reveal hints about how to lead a happy life, something the designers of the so-called grant study never intended to track. Happiness was not a goal in 1942. You know, people would talk about contributing to society. The inner city guys would talk about making a family. There were missions in life if you will, more than there was the sense of, I want to be happy, I want to be self-fulfilled. That is a concept that came more into being in the 60s and 70s. Of course, the study's findings are mostly limited to white men born in a very specific time period, and Waldinger is careful not to speak for any other populations. But he still thinks there are important lessons to be drawn from the data. For example, happiness grows with age. We actually notice the positive more than the negative as we get older, and we remember it better. And that's very much in contrast to younger adults who notice the negative more than the positive, right? So there are curmudgeons that get more curmudgeonly as they age. But (laughs) by and large, we all get to be a little bit more like Pollyanna as we get older. Interesting. In some ways, evolutionarily, that may be adaptive in that when you're a young adult, you want to see some of the dangers on the horizon and be able to anticipate them. Mm -hmm. But one argument about why older adults pay more attention to the positive is that they have a sense that time is short, that life is not going to go on forever. And they begin to 
ask the question, am I really taking time to enjoy what's here? But what this was about initially, as I understand it, was trying to identify characteristics that led to leadership, not particularly to happiness. How did this morph into what some people have called the happiness study? Well, it morphed into the happiness study because one of the things that we know, of course, is that success and even leadership are not equivalent to happiness. And we found, no surprise, that some of the happiest people were not the most successful in publicly recognized terms. And some of the more unhappy people were quite successful if you look at their resumes. So could you give me an example of the profile of a happy person who was, quote, not successful? Yes. One of the happiest men was a history teacher at a private school. He started right after college. He had to work summers as a fuller brush salesman going door to door to make ends meet Uh because he made so little money. Sure. He stayed teaching at the same prep school for decades. And he had these warm, rich relationships with his wife, with his children, had hobbies that he loved, really enjoyed his work. So successful in the sense of being fulfilled and engaged and happy, not successful as measured by uh, income level or uh, status. Exactly. Stepping back and looking at this remarkable treasure trove of data, what were the big surprises for you? I think the biggest surprise was how much warm, close relationships determine not only how happy you are, but how healthy you are, and that relationships really get under your skin in a good way, and the absence of relationships or very acrimonious relationships get under your skin in a bad way. That's probably the biggest surprise. But isn't that a chicken and egg kind of thing? Don't happier people establish better relationships? I mean, which comes first? It is a chicken and egg kind of thing. So that it's almost impossible to tease out which causes which, as with so many things in human development. However, some of the physical effect, and actually the physical effects too, that if your health is terrible, you're less fun to be around, you're less likely sure. to reach out to other people. So the relationships are never one way. Yes. You know, if we go back to the founding early America, the pursuit of happiness uh, had a very particular meaning uh, in those days. What would you say the pursuit of happiness means today? Hmm. I think that the happiest people in our study are the people who are engaged in the world in pursuits that they care about. Interesting. It could be in raising kids. It could be in gardening. It could be in being president of the United States. But it's that quality of engagement in things that you find meaningful that I think is really where happiness shows up. So it's not so much hedonism. It's not, am I happy right this second? Mm -hmm. It's more about the longer term. So for example, that man who taught history at a prep school his whole career loved mentoring kids. 
Robert, if relationships are so important, how can we spend most of our time thinking yeah. about stuff? Well, things, things we can buy. Partly because our media knows that they can promise us all kinds of satisfaction with stuff and quick fixes. And so we are bombarded with stories that if we just get this or that next thing, we will be happy. We may even have happier relationships. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Oh, I mean, look at Viagra commercials and Seattle's commercials. They're all about happy relationships. What two people in two separate bathtubs are doing and how that works, (laughs) I don't understand. And then looking out over the ocean together in a cold kind of metallic bathtub, I don't get it. But, you know, life is hard and life is full of unhappy and difficult stuff. And there are these promises out there in the culture that you can avoid all that or you can get away from all that. Right. And that, that I think, is what turns people away from what's right here, including their relationships, toward these kind of mirages. Well, I'm happy that you took the time to share the results of this fascinating study with us today, Robert. Thanks so much for joining us on Backstory. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot. Robert Waldinger is a psychiatrist at Harvard Medical School. We're going to end the show today by returning to the Declaration of Independence. We wanted to take a moment to consider a notable speech about the struggle for the right to pursue happiness, a struggle that extended long past the moment these words were penned. The speech was given on the 4th of July, 1852, by abolitionist Frederick Douglass to an anti-slavery society in Rochester, New York. When Douglass took the stage that day, tensions over slavery were spreading across the country. Congress had just passed the Fugitive Slave Act, which decreed that Northerners had to help return runaway slaves. Uncle Tom's Cabin was written in response to this act. Douglass began by reflecting on his own story. The fact is, ladies and gentlemen, the distance between this platform and the slave plantation from which I escaped is considerable, and the difficulties to be overcome in getting from the latter to the former are by no means slight. The structure is brilliant. It's it's in many ways an oratorical symphony in three movements. This is Yale historian David Blight, who has written extensively about Frederick Douglass. The first movement, in a, in a way, is the first, oh, several pages of the speech where he welcomes the audience, he honors the Founding Fathers, he calls the Fourth of July the American Passover. He, uh, he, he directly quotes from the Declaration of Independence. He calls the Declaration of Independence the ring bolt and the sheet anchor of American liberty. He honors the Founding. The signers of the Declaration of Independence were brave men. They were great men, too. Great enough to give frame to a great age. And it's as though he's putting his audience pleasantly at ease with uh, the the celebration of American independence. And then, about a third of the way into the speech, the hammer comes down. Fellow citizens, pardon me. Allow me to ask, why am I called upon to speak here today? What have I, or those I represent, to do with your national independence? 
are the great principles of political freedom. It becomes yours, not mine. And he begins to rain the pronoun you, you, you down onto his audience. The blessings in which you this day rejoice are not enjoyed in common. The justice, liberty, prosperity, and independence bequeathed by your fathers is shared by you, not by me. This 4th of July is yours, not mine. To drag a man in fetters into the grand illuminated temple of liberty and call upon him to join you in joyous anthems, wherein human mockery and sacrilegious irony. Do you mean, fellow citizens, to mock me by asking me to speak today? It's as though he has suddenly strapped his audience in their seats and won't let them move. And he rains down this litany of, of American hypocrisy about slavery. I do not hesitate to declare with all my soul that America is false to the past, false to the present, and solemnly binds herself to be false to the future. Therefore, I will, in the name of humanity which is outraged, in the name of liberty which is fettered, in the name of the Constitution and the Bible, which are disregarded and trampled upon, dare to call in question and to denounce with all the emphasis I can command everything that serves to perpetuate slavery, the great sin and shame of America. That spring of 52, early summer, Uncle Tom's Cabin was published uh, to enormous readership. At the time Douglas gives this speech in Rochester, it's possible that half that audience already had a copy of Uncle Tom's Cabin. So this is an audience conditioned to some extent for this kind of critique of American hypocrisy. But I would also suggest that that audience, Douglas's own neighbors and friends, came to that speech that day not quite probably expecting how that hail was going to rain down on them. What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer a day that reveals to him more than all of the days in the year, the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham. But uh, it's his point that you've invited black people here to sing for you, but we're not going to sing for you. We're going to make you hurt. Your shouts of liberty and equality, hollow mockery. Your prayers, hymns, sermons, and thanksgivings are to him Mere bombast, fraud, and hypocrisy. A thin veil to cover up crimes which would disgrace a nation of savages. Imagine being on the other end of that and thinking you were on his side when you walked in. <laughs> but then, about two-thirds of the way through the speech, this portion comes to an end with a horrible image. It's right out of, uh, out of, out of Jonathan Edwards and the, the Puritan sermons of the 18th century. Be warned! A horrible reptile is coiled up in your nation's bosom. The venomous creature is nursing at the tender breast of your youthful republic. For the love of God, tear away and fling from you! the hideous monster, and let the weight of 20 millions crush and destroy it forever. And after that image, there's a transition. Probably he paused, and this hailstorm of humiliation stops. Notwithstanding the dark picture I have this day presented of the state of this nation, I do not despair of this country. It's as though he picks them up and kind of wipes their brows off 
and he says the principles of the declaration the principles of the declaration of independence are still there they're like precious ore uh, they're forever they're natural rights drawing encouragement from the declaration of independence and the great principles it contains and he says it's still not too late america is young it's youthful it's malleable it is still possible to save the country from itself and then he ends with a, a poem that actually, I think, became a hymn uh, that was written by William Lloyd Garrison called Godspeed, the Year of Jubilee. The Year of Jubilee, the wide world o'er. Godspeed the day when human blood shall cease to flow. Godspeed the hour, the glorious hour when none on earth shall exercise a lordly power. So he ends on this note of of you know the hopeful coming day of emancipation somehow someday but what 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 that audience had experienced over probably an hour and a half is Douglas as an ironist at his best uh, Douglas the the kind of Jeremiahic prophet at his best uh, it's a speech that I think frankly is the rhetorical masterpiece of American abolitionism and no one, frankly, used, appropriated the principles of the Declaration of Independence quite so forcefully as did abolitionists, particularly black abolitionists. Uh, the natural rights tradition, liberty, equality, the right of revolution, without those principles. And I think this is, this is implicitly what Douglas is actually arguing in the Fourth of July speech. Without those principles at the founding, where would blacks have ever looked for a future in America. They'd have had no future in America. That was David Blight, and David directs the Gilder Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition at Yale University, and he's the author of Frederick Douglass's Civil War, Keeping Faith in Jubilee. The speech was read by Fred Morsell. Lay some happiness on me, show the brighter side you'll see, no more worrying to me. Let us know if today's show made you happy. You can leave a comment on our website, backstoryradio.org. And while you're there, share your stories and questions about our upcoming episodes. You can also find us on Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter at Backstory Radio. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. Today's episode of Backstory was produced by Nina Ernest, Andrew Parsons, Kelly Jones, Emily Gaddick, Robert Armengall, Bruce Wallace, and Bridget McCarthy. Jamal Milner is our engineer. We had help from Henry Winsack. Special thanks this week to our reader, Kelly Libby, and to the National Archives. Backstory is produced at the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. Major support is provided by the Shia Khan Foundation, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Additional funding is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment, and by History Channel, history made every day. Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia and the Dorothy Compton Professor at the Miller Center of Public Affairs. Peter Onuf is Professor of History Emeritus at UVA and Senior Research Fellow at Monticello. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus at the University of Richmond. Backstory was created by Andrew Windham for the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. 
Backstory is distributed by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange.